Got a lot of uh, issues with uh, telephone numbers and time and uh, geographic locations of Plankister, Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> I know, it's, it's a, yeah. Um, guys, I'm really excited because most of you have completed your retreat evaluations and had your opportunity to give feedback on the speaker and the messages. So I'm really fired up about that because uh, once you lock that in, you can't go back and change any of your feedback, just so you know. There's, uh... <laughs> well, guys, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be with you. I uh, always love coming back to Phoenix. I lived in Phoenix for a number of years after I graduated college. My wife and I got married, moved to Phoenix, and uh, started new jobs, and uh, I came out here with uh, an agenda, and God, uh, God had a different idea in mind. So it was, it was in my early 20s, and this is the, the place in, I say Phoenix, we're not in Phoenix, but in Arizona, where God really got a hold of me and uh, turned me upside down. So uh, it's always uh, just uh, sweet memories and, and a joy to come back to, to this part of the country. I uh, wanted to talk today, men, about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Small subject, right? I think there are many throughout history who have attempted to successfully and probably more times than not unsuccessfully determine the answer to this question. Man has, through the ages, tried to marry Jesus to pretty much any and every cause, um, from the Crusades to slavery to all the isms like environmentalism, feminism, socialism, capitalism, racism, now anti-racism, and on and on. From Jesus as a Democrat to Jesus as a Republican, from Jesus as a conservative to Jesus as a progressive. Really on both sides of any issue, man has so often attempted to use Jesus to legitimize his system of belief by wedding Jesus to it. Interestingly, more recently, the He Gets Us campaign, you guys may be familiar with that. They have billboards uh, in major markets and some commercials during the Super Bowl last year. They had a few different commercials. Well-meaning, well-meaning organization. They were described by a major media outlet as such. <clears throat> it says they portray the pivotal figure of Christianity as an immigrant a refugee, a radical, an activist for women's rights, a bulwark against racial injustice and political corruption. The He Gets Us website features content about of-the-moment topics like artificial intelligence and social justice, end quote. You see, the temptation to make Jesus culturally relevant seems really through the ages to be insatiable. I suggest to you that if we step back and look at ourselves, we too will find that we have fallen victim both in our past and present behavior to this type of behavior. And most times, we attempt to wed Jesus to our system of thought, right? Not my adversaries. And that makes sense. I want Jesus on my side, not the other side. I want him behind my cause, behind my line of thinking. When I was a kid, I had a big uh, bulletin board in upper in the upper corner, I had a bumper sticker that read, uh, we know that Jesus is a Penn State fan, why else would the sky be blue and white? 
And there's a, there's good doctrine in that. <laughs> but we may smile and chuckle at that notion, but in reality, guys, this is the nature of man, right? It's to craft a Jesus that fits into our system of belief, a Jesus that cares about what I care about, a Jesus that is passionate about what I'm passionate about, a Jesus that counts the same things as important that I count as important. And the problem, guys, is that most times what ultimately happens is what we're doing is we're creating and crafting a Jesus that fits into my system of belief, one that makes me comfortable, one that perhaps I can control or maybe even manipulate. As you guys know and can deduce, this is stupidity, right? It's ignorance. And I would suggest to you it's, it's, it's even more, it's idolatry as we try to craft a Jesus into one of our liking rather than the Jesus that the scriptures reveals to us. So what I wanted to do in our time this morning was attempt to approach the scriptures with all assumptions and presuppositions aside and just see what the scriptures say about who Jesus is. This is what I did as I kind of prepared, you know, my talk, my message this morning. And that's really one of the reasons I chose the title Jesus. Y'all are probably thinking, like, this guy's really uh, uh, creative, right? <laughs> A title of Jesus. But that was strategic, at least in my mind, just so that I didn't add anything to it because I wanted to just see what the scriptures say, put all that stuff aside, and let's see what... Uh, Jesus says about himself and what the scriptures say about himself. Now, as you can imagine, there is quite a lot of content in our Bibles about Jesus, right? So, Trevor's given me, um, your itinerary is wrong. He has given me two hours. So, just buckle, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, a lot to pack into one hour. So, certainly it's not going to be a, a completely comprehensive talk, but what I wanted to focus on specifically, do you have my, uh, did you not get my, PowerPoint, it's good, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. No, that's right, I'm gonna keep going. What I'm gonna talk about is six roles or characteristics of Jesus, and they're actually in your uh, retreat booklet. You'll see it's uh, Jesus as God, we'll talk about, Jesus as creator, as ruler, Jesus as judge, as man, and Jesus as redeemer and Messiah. Now. Certainly understand that this is not an exhaustive list. I don't, uh, I don't suggest that it is. Or is it in any type of order of importance? Um, but this is going to be our backdrop. With time that we have remaining, I do have a last section uh, that we can talk about some things. But primarily, the first two-thirds of our time will be looking at these roles of Christ. So with that as our backdrop, men, uh, let me open up in a word of prayer, huh? Uh, Almighty God, it has been a uh, tremendous weekend, and we thank you for, uh, for it, for your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, endurance and uh, just a capacity to continue to intake some information this morning. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, my words would be pleasing to you. Uh, we invite your spirit to come and be the teacher, acknowledging that if that uh, doesn't take place, nothing will happen. And uh, Lord, above all, know that it's the desire of our hearts that you will be pleased in our time and that you be brought glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, Mr. Ray has agreed to do some reading for me. If you see him, raise the mic over there. Uh, guys, if you want to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1, 
We're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then verse 14. I'm going to have him read it first out of the past, just as it reads. And then I'm going to have him make a little bit of a change and read it a second time. Uh, but we're in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to 14. Go for it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Thank you. Um, so who is the word in that passage, man? The word is Jesus, right? It says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the word. Now, I'm going to have Ray reread the passage, but every place that it says or uses the word, and every pronoun for Jesus, I'm going to have him actually insert the name of Jesus there and reread it. Ray, if you could do that for us. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son, Jesus, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So a lot packed into just these four verses, right, men? Two very important things I wanted to take note in the first verse alone, if you look at the text. First, it says that Jesus always was with God, right? There was not a time that he was not with God. He was not created at a later date. He was always and always is and always will be. He is eternal. He didn't burst onto the scene at his birth in Bethlehem. He was not created. He always was, as the passage reads. We can cross-reference this uh, truth with the creation account in Genesis 1.26. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. But the scriptures read, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice he doesn't say me and my. He uses us and our and this is our rep this this us and our represent our godhead right jesus was there at creation he's eternal the second truth to note from the verse the first verse is that jesus was god period if you look at the end of the first verse in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word jesus was god and men I don't think this should be glossed over. He is not inferior to God the Father. Jesus is not a second-hand God or a lesser embodiment of God. He is, was, and always will be fully, 100% God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 tells us that for in, for in Him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Not partial deity, not inferior deity, but the fullness of deity dwells. And that's Jesus, Jesus our God. The scriptures are abundantly clear over and over and over again. Jesus is God. 1 John 5.20 uh, says regarding Jesus, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus himself says of himself in John 8.58, he starts out and says, truly, truly. And I would suggest to you guys that um, when, I, when I hear Jesus say that, it's as if he's telling me 
and us, his audience, to pay extra close attention to what I'm about to say. Sit up on the edge of your chair, lean in, and don't miss what I'm about to tell you. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, therefore, before Abraham was born, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus draws attention in the passage to his infant existence, saying, as he talks to his Jewish audience, before Abraham was, I was. And then he makes a direct claim to deity when he says the second part. He says, I am. Of course, he's referencing back in Exodus where Moses is interacting with God, and Moses says to God, well, who, who should I say sent me? What name should I use? And, and uh, God's response is, I am. You tell him, I am sent you. And here, Jesus is telling the Jews, I am. He's making his direct claim to deity. The New Testament opens with the truth of Jesus' godness. In Matthew one twenty three. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, end quote. Jesus, one of his names, Emmanuel, literally is God with us. His name exclaims his deity. Men, Jesus is separate and distinct from the Father, but never to be confused with less than or inferior to. <coughs> His deity is established, as we've talked about clearly. There's a drumbeat throughout Scripture. Jesus is God. Moving on, let's next look at Jesus as creator. And we're going to look back to your, if you're still in John chapter 1, we're going to look there real quick. We see in the passage, uh, not only do we learn that Jesus always was, that he was always with God, and that he always was God, but if you look in verse 3 with me, It says that Jesus was involved in creation. Let's read it. It says, all things came into being through him, Jesus, and apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. I'd encourage you to sit back and ponder that, man. Not only was Jesus at creation, he was actually at the complete center of creation. Colossians 1.16 expands on this tells us that for by him, Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow, huh? So not only was creation and our world and all that is in it created by Jesus, but also everything in the heavens as well, everything visible, invisible, Kingdoms, rulers, authorities. The passage says not only were they created by him and through him, but in the end it tells us they were, and possibly most importantly, created for him. Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. Men, there is nothing that has been created, nothing that has not been created by Jesus and for Jesus. Our universe, our Milky Way, our solar system and all of our earth, all that's contained there within, Jesus. The anatomy and intricacies of the human body down to the heart, human eye, down to the cell, the DNA level, Jesus. Gravity, science, mathematics, emotion, the soul, Jesus. All things were created through him, 
All things came into being through him and for him. Not only this, guys, but the scriptures goes on, go on to say that the whole of this created order that was created by him is held together by Jesus. Colossians 3.17 says, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen. That is a present and active statement, right? That means as we sit here today, Jesus is actively holding the whole of the created order together. It's amazing, isn't it? So that's Jesus as our creator. Let's move on to Jesus as ruler. Ray, if you can, guys, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 1.20. We're going to read 1.20 through 23. And uh, Ray, when you hear the pages stop turning, you can go ahead and read for us. And this is under the, the third role of Jesus as ruler. Which he, God the Father, brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks, Ray. Man, Christ is above all rule and authority and power and dominion, as the first tells us. The word above in that passage in the Greek has the meaning of in a higher place or rank. There is no higher place or rank than Jesus. As the passage says, he put all things in subjection under his feet. If we look, we just looked at the Colossians, a Colossians passage, but if we look back to Colossians 1.17, it says, he, Jesus, is before all things. And that word before in the Greek has the meaning of above. And let's remember verse, let's remember guys in the verse before that uh, Colossians 1.17, in 16 it says, for by him, in him, all things were created in the heavens and earth, right? Invisible, visible. Of course he is the ruler of all. Everything was created by him and for him. Of course he's the ruler of all. Colossians 2.10 says, in, and in him, in Jesus, you have been made complete, and he, Jesus, is head over all rule and authority. Seems to be a little, little bit of a pattern here, huh? John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Not some things, not most things, all things. Jesus himself, testifying of his position, says in Matthew 28.18, says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And then he finishes with the Almighty. This word Almighty in the Greek has the meaning of absolute and universally sovereign, omnipotent. And that's our Jesus, the complete ruler of all, the Almighty. Let's move on to uh, Jesus as judge. Man, I do think that uh, one of the aspects of Jesus that is often glossed over, skipped, missed, or just not focused on is Jesus as judge. And I do think we do ourselves a great disservice 
if we don't pay close attention to what the scriptures have to say about this truth, and there is a lot. Jesus himself communicates to us time and time again how he is the righteous judge. John 5.27 says, And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Jesus executes judgment. Luke 5.22 says, For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Revelation 19.11, speaking of Jesus, reads, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Next one I think is important, guys. Turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 3.12. And uh, as you turn there, just a little bit of context. Uh, the passage we'll read in 3.12 is, is the reader of the Bible and in the historical setting the world's first introduction to Jesus in his public ministry. The beginning of Matthew starts with some genealogies, his birth, his exile and return. And then we come to Matthew 3.12. First in the New Testament, and it's the first time Jesus begins his public ministry. He's walking towards the Jordan River, where John the Baptist is baptizing. And as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, this is what is recorded, and this is our introduction to Jesus, and the world's introduction to Jesus in, uh, in 3.12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thanks, Ray. Note with me, men, that uh, we are not introduced to Jesus as the Savior. We're not introduced to Jesus as being full of grace and mercy. Not introduced to Jesus as a friend or a humble servant. Not introduced as the forgiver of sins. Faith, belief in Jesus is not introduced. How is Jesus introduced to us? He is introduced to us, guys, as the righteous judge. He has his winnowing fork in his hand, and he is beating the wheat on his threshing floor, which represents judgment, and he's separating the wheat, those that are saved, from the chaff, those who are not. And it says that he will, he will what? He will um, clear his threshing floor. His judgment will be complete. And if you look, it's interesting to know what happens to the chaff. It's not just discarded. The chaff is burned up. And, and who does the burning up? It says that he will burn up the chaff. Man, I would suggest to you that this type of introduction is inviting men to fear. Judgment inspires fear. Perhaps that's one of the reasons we don't hear a lot about Jesus as the righteous judge. I would suggest to you men that fear is so important because this has been talked about some this weekend. You can have no authority without fear, no fear without accountability, and no accountability without consequences. And that accountability and consequences can be judgment, right? That's what judgment is. It's holding someone account to account and them incurring consequences. So there can be no authority without fear and no fear without judgment or accountability and consequences. 
uh, men, God, God will never be man's authority if he does not fear him. Fear of God is mentioned hundreds, hundreds of times in the Bible. Something that uh, God continues to bring our attention back to. Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? It starts with uh, fearing God. Ecclesiastes 8.12 says, Quote, it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. Verse 13, next it says, it will not be well for the evil man because he does not fear God. If you fear God, it's going to be good for you. If you don't, the passage seems to indicate that you're an evil man if you don't fear God, and it's not going to be well for you. Jesus himself says in Luke 12, 45, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that, have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him, exclamation point, end quote. Simply put, men, Jesus tells us to fear. Fear is an effective motivator, isn't it? It keeps us safe. When my kids were young, young children, I would do my best to instill a fear into them of a hot stove or a, a busy road or a parking lot. And I would do this in the one because I had their best interests at heart. I wanted to keep them safe. It's the same with God, right? Also, I wanted that fear to help modify their behavior so that when they came into these certain circumstances, they could respond correctly and stay safe. Fear's a good thing. I have teenage daughters. And I would suggest to you, man, if they do not fear me, fear that I can introduce, that I will hold them account to the scriptures and to the laws of our home, the, the rules of our home. If they don't believe that, I will hold them account and that they will suffer consequences. I will have no authority over them. We see it in the employee-employer relationship. If an employee has no fear of losing his job for his employer, he's not going to listen to what is... The employer's going to have no authority over them. See it in our cities with the police force. See it in our relationships, like I said, with our kids. You see it everywhere. There is no authority without fear, no fear without accountability, and no accountability without consequences, which is judgment. Only, well, let me, oh, how about this, guys? If I fear the world and what it can do to me and what people think of me, guess what? The world is going to be my authority. And I will bend and conform myself into compliance with culture rather than into compliance with what my God expects of me. Only if I fear God will he be the authority in my life. Only if a man fears God. Understanding Jesus as the righteous judge is imperative to cultivating our fear of God and is absolutely necessary to our understanding an appreciation of who Jesus is and all that he's about. 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And here you have those three things married together, right? The judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will be held account, right? Will give an account, and he will receive the consequences, good or bad, for his actions. Unless a man 
has a firm grasp on the truth that Jesus is the righteous judge, that he will give an account for his life, and that there are eternal consequences for temporal behavior, eternal consequences for how he lives his life on earth. Unless a man has a firm grasp of those two things, I would suggest to you guys, a man does not have a chance to have God as the ultimate and supreme authority in his life. Must have a firm grasp on that biblical truth. Jesus as the righteous judge. There's no authority without fear, no fear without accountability, no accountability without consequences. Jesus is the righteous judge, and we do well, so, so well, just to not forget that. Moving on, let's look next to uh, Jesus as fully man. Any questions? Jesus is fully man. So not only is Jesus fully God, he is also fully man. He is 100% God, but he's also 100% man. The math equation here is 100 plus 100 equals 100, or 1 plus 1 equals 1. Philippians 2.7 says that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus was born as a baby just like we were. He grew up through adolescence just like we did. Grew into a grown man like many of us. He had a vocation and worked as a carpenter. And he experienced life and its struggles and pains just like we did. The Bible says in John 4, 4, 6 that Jesus grew weary from his journey and that he was thirsty and tired. Jesus was thirsty and tired. We know that when Jesus had his time in the desert, that he felt the physical effects of being hungry and weak after fasting. Jesus was moved by the situation with Lazarus, and what did he do? He wept, right? He had human emotions. Matthew 26, 38, 39 tells us that his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death as he struggled with the reality of heading to the cross. Jesus had his own will, and he willingly subjected it to that of the fathers in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he resisted the temptation to go against his father's will, so much so to the point that what did he, what did he do? He sweat blood. He struggled against the temptation of sin. We know that. Hebrews 4.15 expands on this and tells us, quote, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Take note with me a couple things from this verse, guys. First, it says that Jesus was tempted in all things. Not some things, not most things, but all things. So I suggest to you guys, what that means is there is not a man in here or who has ever existed who has experienced something that Jesus has not experienced. There's not a temptation that you and I have experienced, are in the middle of experiencing, or will experience, that Jesus has not and had victory over. He endured it, yet without sin. And men, it's because of this that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and struggles. And that's huge, right? We have a Jesus who was fully man, and who can empathize and relate to what we go through. 
And I don't think we should take that lightly. We should never forget that he can empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses because he walked in our shoes. And that should absolutely encourage us in our walk as we battle against the flesh. He is a relatable God, a relatable Savior. There's nothing he hasn't experienced and had victory over. He was fully man and has walked in your shoes and my shoes um, as that fully man. Our last role and uh, our last role to look at is Jesus as Redeemer and Messiah. You guys can turn your Bibles actually. Why don't we all turn there? 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, man, as we know, we have been separated from God because of our sin, right? The relationship has been fractured. Romans tells us that for the wages of sin is death, and not just a physical death, but an eternal death and separation from God. Only through Jesus, our great Redeemer and Messiah, can a man be reconciled through Christ's death on the cross. Through that incredible act of what happened on the cross, the man who has faith and has repented of his sins and invite Christ into his life can be restored in that relationship with God the Father. But I think it's of value to dive a little bit deeper into what actually happened on the cross. Um, I told, you know, not to worry about the... Uh, uh, the PowerPoint, because I only have a few slides, but the one slide um, has a picture of the cross and then a picture of man. And it has an arrow going to the, from man to the cross and another arrow going from the cross to man. And what those arrows represent is represented in our verse in actually 2 Corinthians 5.21. The arrow going from me to the cross is what? I have given my sins. God the Father imputed our sins the man who has um, put his faith and trust in Christ has imputed our sin to Jesus on the cross. Jesus, and that word imputed simply means um, like charged to the account. It's almost like an accounting term where he moved it from my ledger and put it over into Jesus' ledger. So that on the cross, Christ suffered the wages of sin. The punishment and justice of God for that sin came down upon Jesus Christ. Jesus became the embodiment of sin on that cross for us. But that's only half of the transaction, right? This is the best deal man's ever, man's ever made, right? Man hasn't made it. The best deal man's ever been given. The second arrow is the arrow going from Jesus to man. And what happened there, the verse says it, but he imputed the righteousness of Christ to you and me. The verse says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So not only did my sin get imputed to Christ, but God imputed Christ's righteousness to me. So I, Chris, the wretched sinner that I am, can stand before God, and he sees me not as a sinner, but he sees me as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me. Isn't that amazing? 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew why he came. And that Greek word ransom means redemption price. Jesus is yours and he's mine, redemption price. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20 reads, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Isaiah 53, 5, foretelling of Christ says, but he, Christ, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. That's love, huh? What an incredible redeemer and Messiah. Man, let me read this to you. Have you ever just sat and contemplated and thought about the hugeness of all of this? Jesus, the incarnation of God himself, stepped down out of heaven and wrapped himself in our humanity, taking on the form of a man, willingly, willingly suffered the same temptations we do, dealt with the same fatigue and hunger and thirst that we do. Jesus, the one through whom all was created, the one through whom all things that we now see and observe are actively being held together. This Jesus, whom has all rule and authority, the one who is the righteous judge, willingly suffered a horrific death, and I think more importantly, suffered becoming the embodiment of all of our sin so that he might redeem you and me, us undeserving, wretched sinners. That kind of love is amazing, huh? Our Redeemer and wonderful Messiah. So, man, that concludes my first section. And I'm doing all right on time, right? <clears throat> um, I do have one more section where I'll talk a little bit about um, what it is, it seems, Jesus talks a lot about throughout his public ministry. But in, in conclusion of this section, guys, I would suggest to you that I think it's so important for a man to value, understand, and appreciate all these different aspects and roles of who Jesus is in order to fully comprehend the value, the fullness, the complexity, the majesty of Jesus, who he was, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for all of us. We need to have a full understanding of all six characteristics of all those roles of Christ. I'd further suggest that if we miss out on grafting in any of these characteristics of who Jesus is, Jesus is God, as creator, as ruler, as judge, as man, as redeemer and Messiah, I suggest to you that we not only will have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is, but we will lack an appropriate and necessary appreciation and wonder of the fullness of Christ, of Jesus, and all that he has done for us. 
So thank you, Jesus. Right, guys? So as I looked at the passage, as I looked through the Gospels and the Scriptures, I tried to um, glean, is there anything that it seems that Jesus talked about more than anything else? Is there anything that continually comes up in his teaching or, or as he's talking with men? Now, I don't have a license to be right, but as it seemed to me, there, were, there seemed to be three steady drumbeats throughout his public ministry. And those drumbeats were on judgment, him speaking about judgment, about obedience, and about eternal rewards. They seem to come up over and over and over again. So I want to take, in the time that remains, quickly just a look at some of the things Jesus said about this and uh, see if it can impact our thinking at all. So let's talk about Jesus. We talked about Matthew 3.12, how Jesus started his public ministry, being introduced to us as the righteous judge, right? Separating the wheat from the chaff. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about judging the motives of men's hearts as it relates to practicing righteousness. Is it for the praise of man or is it for the praise of God? He tells us that he will judge us on this. In the same passage further on, it talks about he will judge us as it relates to our giving, our prayer, our fasting. Is it for man approval or the approval of God? He will judge us on our motives. And as we know, guys, God accepts nothing except that which is done for him and him alone. Further on in the passage, it talks about not forgiving our enemies. He'll judge us on this. Matthew 7, he says that we will be judged based on our own standard. That's, and that's dangerous, huh? In the way in which we judge others, that's one of his principles for judgments. That's one of the ways he's going to judge us. That's sobering. Matthew 10, 28, he implores us, again, not to fear the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and cast into hell. And that's the result of judgment, right? The casting into hell. Matthew 11, in denouncing the cities in which most of his miracles were done, in two different passages, in 22 and 24, he references, quote, the day of judgment. Matthew 12, 36, he states that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. He talks twice more in the same chapter about the upcoming judgment. And on and on and on in the Gospels does he talk about judgment, judgment, judgment. So why does he do this? Can we draw any conclusions on why he might do this? Now, again, I, I don't know for sure, but I do think that it's connected back to that authority, fear, accountability, and consequences. Ecclesiastes 8, 11, and 12. Turn with me there if you, got, if you don't mind, guys. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 reads, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. So I think the principle we can glean from this verse, men, is that we as men tend to push the envelope in our behavior because we don't experience the immediate judgment 
accountability and consequences of our actions. And because of this, the passage says what? We are emboldened in our behavior because the sentence against an evil deed, it's not, we don't experience it. Therefore, we're given fully to do evil even more. Let me ask you rhetorically, if we were each to, at the end of the day, have our time with Jesus, our, our judgment at the end of each day for us to review how that day went, would that affect yours and would it affect my behavior that day? Would it affect how closely we walk with Jesus, how we treated people, the decisions we made? Man, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to, to say I know it would affect me. So what I think is that Jesus talks so much about Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Jesus talks so much about judgment so that by hammering this into this stake into the ground, that judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, that our senses and our awarenesses and our minds are heightened to the reality and the truth that we will all face judgment. I think he said, don't forget, men, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Don't, just because a sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, judgment is coming. Don't forget. The knowledge and the heightened awareness of this truth can serve as our friend as we live our lives. It can certainly help us be more successful as we attempt to walk faithfully with Jesus. As Jerry said, as we try to run the race that's been set before us. Judgment and judgment and judgment is coming, man. The second thing I think Jesus seems to hammer home is obedience. And turn with me in your Bibles. This verse has been brought up a few times to John chapter 14. And we're going to look at four different verses here quickly. But in the four verses we'll look at, Jesus says the same thing in a slightly different way. And I kind of relate a lot of things back to my kids because there's so many parallels between God dealing with us and, and, and me dealing with my children. But if I really want my children to get something, to understand something, to have it sink down into the depths of their being so they don't forget, I tell them, I tell them again, and I tell them again. My daughter just went to a, uh, a music concert, and she's 18, a freshman in college, and uh, I wasn't really excited about you know, she's going down to Austin, and at any rate, um, I said, make sure you have your mace with you, and you got to have your mace in your hand when you're walking around from your car to the venue. It does you no good if it's in your pocket, and you know how many times I told her that? I told her again, and again, and again, and then I texted her, and, every, and she actually sent me a picture last night with her and her mace in her hand, <laughs> because it sunk down into, into her memory. I think that's what Jesus is trying to do to us here. In verse 15, so we're in John 14, chapter 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Pretty straightforward, guys. God says, if you want to communicate love to me, the way that I receive it, the way that you tell me you love me, is you obey me. Then when you look on to verse 21, if you guys want to look down, Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So here he not only talks again about obedience is how we communicate love to him, but he says, do you want me to disclose and reveal myself to you? Obey me. 
That is a prerequisite. Verse 23 says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's obedience, keeping his word. And then in verse 24, he says the same thing, in the, but he turns it and says it in the negative. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. So the man who lives a disobedient life communicates to God that he doesn't actually love him. Mark 3.35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Doing the will of God, guys, is obedience. Jesus himself said in Luke 22.42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Not only does Jesus talk a significant amount and beat the drum of obedience, obedience, obedience throughout his public ministry, he actually gives us the perfect example of what obedience look like, looks like. Us coming up against the will of the Father and not wanting to do it, maybe not understanding it, agreeing with, but we say, like Jesus did, not my will, but your will be done. That's obedience. Not only da 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 da. So, a few more passages on obedience. It comes up again and again and again. Luke eleven twenty eight. He says, "Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Observe it as obedience, guys." Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, acts on them. May he be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, end quote. Acts on them. That's obedience, men. Are we building our lives on the rock with a life of obedience? Jesus takes the Pharisees to task in Matthew 15, 3 for their lack of obedience, saying, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your, trans for the sake of your tradition? God says in Isaiah 29, 13, listen to this. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Men, what we can say has little value compared to what we do. What we actually do reveals what's inside here. That's why I think obedience is so important. It's evidentiary of who I am, of what's inside of me. My lips can say one thing, but if you want to see what I believe... What I'm about, look at what I do. Look at my actions. John 7, 17, and this was unpacked nicely earlier in that great devotional. Jesus tells us that a heart of obedience precedes understanding when he says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will then know the teaching. The willingness comes, the obedience comes before knowing. And on and on and on and on again throughout the the. Gospels, guys, Jesus talks about obedience, obedience, obedience. Last thing I wanted to draw our attention to was rewards. Jesus regularly talks about rewards throughout his ministry. We've talked about this verse some. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Jesus says, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but do store, do store for yourselves up Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And men, as you'll know with me, that's a, that's a command, right? That's not a, 
encouragement or a suggestion, he is commanding and saying, you, Chris, need to be in the business of storing up treasures in heaven. I've never been accused of being the sharpest tool in the shed, but I can deduce that if Jesus tells me to do something, to store up treasures in heaven, that I therefore have an ability to do so. You and I have an ability to affect what our eternity looks like. Turn with me, guys, to Matthew 19, 27. Two, three minutes? Okay. Matthew 19, 27. Uh, context here. Uh, Jesus is, uh, and his disciples, they're, they're in Jerusalem. They're moving. The, the cross um, is getting closer in the timeline of history, and Jesus knows that. His disciples don't, but Jesus knows that the cross is getting closer and closer. And uh, in this passage in 1927, we have an interaction between Peter and Jesus. And in it, and I love Peter, uh, Peter who tends to uh, sometimes speak, uh, speak first and think second, uh, says this, if you'll read with me in, in 1927. He says, behold, we have left everything and followed you, but what then will there be for us? So Jesus, knowing what's coming, has uh, Peter sit before him and say, Jesus, what am I gonna get out of this? What's in it for me? And you would anticipate, at least I would, that Jesus is gonna rebuke him, blow him out of the water for having such a statement derived from self-interest. Not selfishness, but self-interest. But listen to Jesus' response. Jesus actually legitimizes the question in his response in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones. He's talking to his disciples. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So not only does he legitimize Peter's question, Jesus actually then goes on and brings all of us into the teaching as well. In verse 29, if you read along with me, he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my, my name's sake will what? He will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, Men, I am a debtor to no man. Sacrifice is giving up something of present value, temporally, for something of greater future value, eternally. Jesus says, anything that you sacrifice for me here, I will repay you in heaven. We know the 2 Corinthians 5.10 verse we already talked about, right? Jesus says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, repaid for his deeds in the body, whether good or bad, according to what he has done. That verse is such a great blend of those three things that we talked about. Judgment, accountability, consequences. And Second uh, Corinthians 5.10. Mm -hmm. Men, we've got to grab hold of the fact that what we do here impacts our eternity. As Christians, how we live our life here is has eternal consequences. 
Some of Jesus' own last words in the Bible are found in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, 12. You don't need to turn there. It's a short verse. I'll read it. But it is some of the last words that Jesus communicates to us in the scriptures. And I would suggest to you men that last words often carry great importance, do they not? If I was giving last words to my children, I would not instruct them to uh, make sure that you always order, never order a steak medium well. You've got to order it medium rare. Don't ever go above that. I certainly wouldn't be talking about that. I'd be talking about what are you going to give your life to? Walk with Jesus. Run your race. I'd be saying those something that is of great, great significance. And I think that's what Jesus does here. He says in chapter 22, 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. He doesn't want us to forget how quickly he's coming. But then he says, And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Man, Jesus wants us to not forget to be motivated, motivated by eternal reward. So judgment, 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 obedience, 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 rewards, rewards, rewards. Men, uh, I thank you for the time. Putting this together was, uh, as, as often it is, was uh, a greater blessing to me. I'm sure that it was to you, but it's just the, the, the passages are, are just so rich of, uh, of our wonderful Jesus, all he is. Um, all he's done for us. Uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful exercise for me. And uh, appreciate your time. That's all I have. Are there any questions? All right, good deal. Thank you, guys.